Hello. Welcome to the Dewey Decimal Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Morehart from American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association. Thanks for joining us for an episode that I've been looking forward to since the podcast's inception. Today, we talk about design and architecture. Now, every fall in American Library September and October issue, we publish our annual Library Design Showcase. It's where we highlight new libraries constructed over the past year that uh, have really wowed us, either with new innovations or just overall really incredible design. Now, I compile and edit the showcase each year, so for the past few months, I've kind of been in 24-7 library design mode. It's a part of the year that I relish, I really do, so it's only natural that this kind of design obsession mindset that I'm in right now will work its way into Dewey Decibel. This month on the Dewey Decibel podcast, we tackle library architecture and design from a variety of angles. Joining us is Brian Lee. He's an architect at Skidmore, Owings & Merrill here in Chicago. Brian worked on Chicago Public Library's stunning new Chinatown branch. I joined Brian at the library itself to talk about its genesis, its design, and how a library's design can reflect the community that it serves. Then, we talked to Kimberly Bolin. She's from the uh, library consulting group Kimberly Bolin and Associates. And she's also the author of Teen Spaces, the step-by-step library makeover. Kim and I talk about the importance of teen spaces in libraries, whether libraries should have a teen space or whether they shouldn't. And finally, I talked to uh, Fred Schlipf. Fred's Professor Emeritus at the Graduate School of Library and Information Science at the University of Illinois Urbana. Fred joins us to discuss what you should not do. That's right, what you should not do when planning a new library. And alternately, what you should do if you're stuck with a library with some really bad design. We all know about Hoopla, right? You know about Hoopla? I know about Hoopla. Let's talk about Hoopla. Hoopla Digital is a revolutionary digital service that brings hundreds of thousands of movies, full music albums, audiobooks, and more to your library. From Hollywood blockbusters to best-selling artists and authors, but you know, not just the hits, you can also find niche and hard-to-find titles as well. You'll find them all on Hoopla. Hoopla Digital can be a part of everyday life for everyone. And today, that includes kids with the new Hoopla Kids mode setting. The sights, the sounds, There's so much to explore and discover, and it's all for kids and families. Hoopla Kids Mode is the gateway to a multi-format family digital media experience. All the content, books, video, music, has been selected and brought together in one place to give kids and families an environment where young minds can explore and discover the world around them safely through media. For more information, visit HooplaDigital.com today. Chicago Public Library's new Chinatown branch is relatively new. Just opened up in August of 2015, so it's about a year old. But it sent waves throughout the city when it opened, and also the library design and architecture worlds racking up awards left and right. Now, if you've seen this library, it's easy to see why it's being celebrated. Aesthetically, it's stunning. It's a rectangular glass building right at the entrance of Chinatown, and it's modeled after a traditional Chinese home with a um, courtyard-like structure in the middle, and it glows like a lantern at night. It's a perfect example of a space both integrating itself into its community and reflecting the community in which it serves. And serve it does. On the day that I joined Brian Lee, the chief architect for the Chinatown project, at the library, it was packed with people, some studying, some reading, 
some were enjoying guitar lessons in one of the many open community rooms on the first floor. The place was a picture of activity, and that's where Brian and I began our talk. Brian, this building, it's, it's amazing, it's beautiful, and it's packed full of people. What is it like coming back here? Um, it's it open August 2015. What's it like coming back several months later and seeing your library that you had a big part in, a major part in, so full of people? Well, it's always fun to, to come back to the building that you designed. A lot of work goes into conceptualizing and, and thinking about what the project might be and how people might use it. And then to actually come back and actually see people in the space, um, hopefully really enjoying the, the the library itself and all the facilities, but kind of most importantly, you know, getting something out of it where uh, the experience of being inside the building, whether it be about the natural light or the kind of ability to kind of have access to a great space to study, to learn, to discover, you know, the things that you do in a library really are facilitated by the environment. So that's that's the really fun part for me is to see how people use it. And uh, I don't I don't think that, you know, design never gets finished. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of clients don't like to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> they think we keep on designing things and go on and on. But, you know, we always find things that uh, moving furniture around or I just noticed that on the benches, we designed these open benches mm-hmm. that could be doubled as cubbies for books or or other or cushions um, uh, at the children's area mm-hmm. and now they're all covers oh. <laughs> and locks on them oh. and I was like oh, why did they do that? I think it's because people are just like taking things and throwing them all, you know, all over the place and they want to have some measure of control mm-hmm. so it's that kind of stuff that it's always good to get feedback on how the people use the space Great. Now let's let's go back to the beginning. Okay. Now, the, the, the library opened in August of 2015. Now, yeah. when did the project begin? Where was the first of all for our listeners? Now, where was the original location first? Was the library here, or was it in another place in no, the neighborhood? The Chinatown branch was down the street on Wentworth, okay. South Wentworth. Many people that in Chicago know about that, and it was really in a lease space, kind of almost a little storefront space uh, um, down the street. Uh, very heavily used. I even went down there when I first heard about the job just to see what the existing branch was like. And it was just packed with people, very small space, um, overflowing at the seams. And they certainly didn't. I always tell the story that the librarian kicked me out because I wanted to take pictures and she didn't want to have anybody <laughs> disturbing, disturbing, disturbing the patrons. But um, we heard about this project from uh, a colleague that worked at another firm who asked us to join them in a design-build competition. So design-build is where designers, architects, engineers, and a contractor join together Mm -hmm. to submit a proposal uh, and a guaranteed price um, for um, the building complete. And it takes care of, it's kind of a a way of delivering a project, right? Different than the usual, you know, design it, give it to a contractor, he gives a bid, and you know, it takes Mm -hmm. a lot of uncertainties out. So the city uh, had the design-build competition, and that happened in uh, May, uh, June of 2013. So we found out, I think, in July or something like that, 2013, and then started on the rest of the drawings, which was design development, construction documents, and it started construction in, I was looking, had to look back at my records, um, started construction around April of 2014. So it took about a little bit over a year to build this. 
Okay, now, when you were do in that initial um, phase where you were submitting to the city for the competition, mm -hmm. um, when you come to this branch, it's very much a part and reflects the community that's in, I think, in Chinatown. Was that a part of your initial plan? Yeah, um, very much so. You know, I think, uh, as I mentioned, coming down and seeing the existing facility and knowing how important that facility was to the community, uh, which includes Chinatown, and, but it's not only just Chinese, there's a really diverse population mm -hmm. that lives in this area, that uh, when we did the competition, we thought, above all, uh, this place needed really to be a, a community center. Not, not a community center as a community center, but a center of the community. Mm -hmm. Because it had all the um, facilities that made it a, a real hub and gathering place place where people came to get knowledge, people where they could uh, come together to learn, uh, to socialize, it had aspects of culture here. Um, and when we actually met with some neighborhood groups, it was really clear from them that this is what the thing was supposed to be. It had a, it had a need for a community room where the community could um, come, come and do many things that I didn't even imagine might happen in that, in that particular room. Mm -hmm. So when we devised uh, the library itself, we took a little bit of the, the uh, Chicago Public Library's program and moved it around a little bit to do what we thought might be to customize it for this particular site and for this, this particular neighborhood. Okay. Now, now the, the building itself, it kind of has the, um, from, from, from the exterior at night, at night particularly, it has this look of kind of like a glowing lantern. Mm -hmm. I know the, uh, the layout kind of, uh, kind of mimes the like kind of traditional Chinese court uh, house, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> the house with the like a courtyard, and, yeah. and there are some feng shui um, uh, principles yeah. used uh, in the design. Can you talk about that a little bit more? How important was 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 taking that cultural element from the community because we are in Chinatown yeah. and making that uh, a part of the library? Okay, so you know the the site itself is a really uh, an odd shaped lot. And in a sense, some of the prototypes of the city had been building before didn't quite work on the site. So we knew that it had to be a, a site-specific building. And what was really interesting to us is that the movement of people, as well as cars and, and all the traffic and the CTA and the buses, but the, particularly the movement of people north and south um, flowing around this corner was something that we wanted to facilitate, make it easier for people to move around the site. So hence, this building is considered a building in the round, kind of softened rounded corner triangle. Um, and it really doesn't have a back door. Um, it has a garden on all sides, and, uh, or on one side, and then there's, there's streets on the other two sides of the triangle. And so when we did that, we thought about the building as also being um, something that engaged the street. So we made it very transparent. Mm -hmm. So you can see into the building, uh, not, I, not only at the ground level of the street, you know, looking into the community room and the children's area and the staff area is an entry. But we also were aware of the CTA station across the street that you would be able to see into the building and see this as something that as you pass by or waiting on the platform, that it would be and feel like uh, a little bit of the center, you know, kind of going and as you mentioned, a lantern, a beacon for the neighborhood. Now the feng shui part, of, of it is a little bit too mysterious to me. <laughs> <laughs> Were you involved in, in, in that? Oh, yeah, because, you know, I actually brought it up. I said, look, you know, we better, better think about this because many people in the community um, either really believe in it 
because there's many aspects that are, are very practical and, 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 and things that exist in architecture anyways. And there's some people that kind of treat it kind of half, half serious and half, you know, kind of like, well, pay, um, pays to be careful, mm -hmm. you know, um, even though we might not believe in everything. Um, but we, what we did was to um, consider it and actually get a feng shui master, okay. uh, somebody who has uh, done extensive study on this and has dedicated his life to helping other people in terms of understanding some of those principles. So what he did was look at our plans inside. He talked about the flow and talked about the kind of relationship the spaces and how people, what people might see and how comfortable um, they might feel within the space. Uh, and then particularly look at the outside. Uh, and hence, you know, there are no angular sharp corners where the building's super aggressive. Uh, it's kind of a, a building that feels in repose. Mm -hmm. um, we also located the entry. Uh, normally entries kind of want to be on the south, but with the future realignment of Wentworth over to the southern part of Chinatown, uh, that street would be pointing right at the, the south entry uh, at the south, south point of the, of the building. And, you know, headlights and people driving mm -hmm. right at it. it might, it's just, this is not the Champs-Élysées or the uh, Arc of Triumph, you know, at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of uncomfortable to have the cars pointing right at the entry. So we moved the entry slightly off uh, a certain number of degrees on his geomancy compass uh, to locate that entry. Uh, so those are the kind of things that we kind of worked on with the, the Feng Shui Master, just to kind of like see, you know, what were the things that he was saying and did they resonate with the building and the design itself and also did they uh, matter to the community. Yeah, I mean, whether or not the principles themselves work or not, it's aesthetically, it's it's beautiful. I mean, yeah. there there is a definite for for our listeners. We'll have some photos uh, on um, our website. There is a definite flow right. to the, the both the building itself and the interior with the uh, kind of winding shelves yeah. and uh, uh, there is constant movement without movement, and yeah. uh, it's it just it works wonderfully. Yeah, we really wanted to avoid a formal axial relationship where everything just kind of flowed right out and flowed right out the front door. It really does kind of bend and wind mm -hmm. as it moves up. And, and it's actually an interesting sort of path that you can discover places uh, and spaces within the building. And just in an interesting way, uh, it also works quite well for the staff themselves that they are able to see um, and have good sort of... Um, um, viewpoints over the entire facility, both the second floor and the first floor. Mm -hmm. So it kind of worked both ways in terms of people that, that patrons that come to the space and as well as people that work in it. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's just something you mentioned before about being the um, community hub. With, with these glass walls, you are almost like s you're sitting directly in the community. Yeah. It's, um, it's like you said, you can see in, you can see out. Um, it really makes the, the library, um, it's present, I guess, yeah. is what I'm looking for. Sure. It's, a, it's a very present part of Chinatown. Yeah. I think it, it's, a, it's a beautiful building. I think everyone should come and check it out. Yeah. Well, you know, we felt very strongly that, that if anything, you know, libraries in society today um, are really a very important part, we think, um, of, of particularly the neighborhoods, mm -hmm. because they are a way for people to connect to information. You know, not everybody has access to internet and Maybe surprising to some, but you know, I think that Chicago, I think um, Brian Banyan, the head librarian, actually 
was has access to information that one in three don't have access, you know, uh, um, uh, dedicated access to the internet. And so for people to be able to get access to today's information, whether it be for, you know, education or employment or, you know, culture or social, um, it's really important that it's, there's a certain equality there. I think that the other part of it that the library performs is that it, it's multi-generational. And you see really, you know, it's little kids all the way to old people like me <laughs> that are, are using the library. And it's a very diverse population also. Mm -hmm. It's um, serving all, all segments and all classes uh, of the Chicago, um, Chicago city life. And I, that very much pleases me because I think that these libraries um, uh, as really very important centers of the neighborhood, to be then able to open them up, have them transparent, very because they're free, you know, and they're open, um, you know, and free for all, um, accessible. Um, that it performs a very important role in, in society today. So that's why you know when you're sitting here, you connect mm -hmm. to the immediate community, and it helps to, when the landscaping around it, the kind of. Um, Ginkgos and the, the mulberry trees and the plum trees all grow up, and I think it would be quite a beautiful little setting. Thanks again to Brian Lee from Skidmore, Owings & Merrill for talking with Dewey Despel about the Chinatown branch of the Chicago Public Library. If you're in town, you need to stop by and see it. Trust me. Need to know books? Then you need Booklist, the book review magazine of the American Library Association. Considered an essential collection development and reader's advisory tool for more than 100 years, Booklist publishes nearly 700 reviews every month of new books and audiobooks across all subjects and genres. Check out BooklistOnline.com and the Booklist Reader for feature articles and lists that make doing your job easier and more fun. I met Brian Lee, the Chinatown Library architect from our previous segment, at the ALA Annual Conference in Orlando this past June. He and I were both participants on the panel discussion sponsored by the Association for Library Service to Children. Some of you might know it as OUSC. And the, uh, the panel was about creativity in children's spaces. I was the panel moderator, and Brian was there to discuss the Chinatown Library's youth space. And Brian's talk and the whole OUSC program really got me thinking about youth spaces and the importance of creating either space or kind of an inclusive atmosphere for kids and teens at the library. And I wanted to know more. So to do that, I turned to Kimberly Bolin. Kimberly Bolin is the head of Kimberly Bolin & Associates. It's a firm that provides consulting services for public, school, and academic libraries from the U.S. and abroad. Kimberly is also the author of Teen Spaces, the Step-by-Step -Step Library Makeover, which is published by ALA Editions. Kimberly spoke with me recently about Teen Spaces and why they are, and possibly aren't, needed in the library. Why is it important for a library to have a dedicated teen space? Well, this is an interesting question because, um, you know, I am a proponent of uh, libraries having a dedicated teen space. I think it's important when a library has enough, you know, enough square footage to create a, an area where teens feel comfortable being themselves, um, where they can um, talk without feeling pressure of, you know, adults around them shushing them or, you know, not close to a children's area where it's too babyish, but, you know, it's, it's some a place of their own where they can be and um, just kind of 
you know, hang out or work on homework or whatever their activity might be. Um, the, the thing that's interesting, though, that where I've changed my tune is in smaller libraries, where I don't think that sometimes having a dedicated dedicated teen space is the best way to go because usually what people end up doing is like putting it down um, a row of books you know it's, it's like a very small space and it really doesn't provide what teens need so I've been a big proponent over the last five years probably of creating small libraries that are teen friendly overall so oh. the, the whole library is warm and welcoming to them because like I said the concepts for teen space pretty much translate to what adults want to. So if you can create that environment, um, then everybody kind of gravitates towards the library. So it's been kind of an interesting transition for me over the years as I've been kind of working with more and more libraries and teams and um, seeing different size spaces and what works and what doesn't work. For a, a large library, for instance, that does have this available space, um, mm -hmm. to have a dedicated team space, like, as you said, a space of their own. Um, I know yeah. it's very important to to involve the teens in the creation process. So, um, I mean, no one's going to know better what to put in a teen space than a teen itself. Um, okay. Now, um, now how, how, how important is that to have the teens involved in the creation process? I think it's extremely important because so many times I see adults try to guess at what teens are going to like and it ends up not being successful or, you know, just not appropriate because, you know, as adults, you know, we we aren't teens. We were teens once, but, you know, that's mm -hmm. a long time ago, so things evolve. So I think involving the kids, um, you, you make better purchasing decisions. You're actually getting um, understanding what their needs are. Uh, knowing what will work for them, knowing what appeals to them, so, so they actually want to use the space and um, gravitate towards it. And I think not just, you know, having them active at the beginning of the process, but it's something that it really takes dedication on the part of the library or team librarian or whoever to um, keep that involvement because kids are going to grow up, things are going to change, and so that space has to continually evolve with its users, so I, I think that's a, a lot of times where, you know, people might do a good job at the beginning, getting kids in there and getting involved in the process, but then kind of forget that, you know, things are going to change and those kids, you know, graduate, go on to college, and there's a new set of, of kids coming in, and um, <clears throat> so I think that's that's a tough thing for people to do, but I think that's probably one of the biggest um, elements that will guarantee the success of the of the space over you know long period of time. Now, to that, your book, uh, Teen Spaces, uh, the step-by-step -step library makeover, was published by ALA Editions in 2002, and there was a second edition in 2008. Um, yeah. Now, since then, since that, I guess that second edition, what advances and changes have you seen? What changes have you seen in teen spaces since then? Advancements, um, et cetera. Well, I think there's a couple <clears throat> key things. One I already mentioned about, you know, understanding the size of the library and, and you know, making the biggest impact. So having a dedicated teen space in a larger library or just making your library teen friendly in a smaller library. Mm -hmm. um, I think teens uh, really want um, quiet space as well as active space. 
So focus more now um, on creating that zoned multifunctional area where you can have multi a multitude of things going on to appeal to different types of kids. Um, trying to get in non-users to use the library and not just focusing on what existing users want. So trying to thinking about the broader community of teens and who's out there with the potential to be served. Um, interactive space and maker space has been a huge trend in libraries in general, but um, something that has played into teen space development, whether it's creating maker spaces or digital creativity spaces within a teen area um, or adjacent to. Um, so if you have a new teen space and you have the opportunity to, to locate it in a, in a in a way where you could have a digital creativity studio right adjacent to it. So everybody, the adults can use it, but it's convenient for teens to use it as well. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of like location and how we, we think about where the teen space should be in relationship to those new things, also how to incorporate those things within a space. What uh, should a library do if they're looking to create a teen space? What should they not do? What should they not do? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a that's a challenging question. Um, well, I mean, I've been saying for years, don't put the team space, you know, with the children's space. It, it definitely needs to be separated. Mm -hmm. um, you, you're, you're not going to put it next to your local history space or your quiet adult space. You know, you, you think about common sense things about how are kids going to interact in that space and what's you know, you don't want to cause conflict with other users. So I think, you know, location and th those are the big what not to do's or not to put it. Um, not also, you know, you, not purchasing large built-in pieces of service points and large clunky furnishings that can't be moved and large, um, you know, book tall bookshelves. I mean, one of the things I've tried to do in any library design over the last few years is keeping, you know, bookshelves at 66 um, or lower, 66 inches or lower, um, because it just creates more of an open space. It, it, gets, mm -hmm. it puts materials right at eye, uh, at your line of sight. Um, and uh, so that, that's kind of a little tiny thing, but, you know, you have to think about, kind of the overall picture and what's the space going to look like and how what's the feel when when kids look in you know is it going to pull them in or is it just a, a big warehouse of books with a couple seats which really it that kind of defeats the purpose of a teen space but i think flexibility um and and so not purchasing things that are not going to be flexible that are going to kind of the kids can adapt and, and change as needed i think Sometimes I've still seen people make those mistakes, which is sad because furniture isn't cheap. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, now looking forward into the future, where do you see, what do you see in the future of teen library spaces? I mean, I'd like to see them continually evolve into spaces where kids are creating information um, as opposed to just consuming it. So again, going, getting away from a teen space that just has a bunch of book stacks in it with a couple, you know, some furnishings and maybe some, a little bit of technology, but really looking at it from 
you know, how do we engage youth and, and get them connected to the library in a new way? And I think that that creation space, what, whatever it ends up being, you know, we know what it is kind of now. I think that could continually evolve into the future. But I think that's the opportunity to show kids that the library isn't a warehouse of dusty books, which so many kids and adults, unfortunately, still think that's what our libraries are today. So if you can engage them and show them, you know, we're gonna we're gonna help you learn how you know about things and how to create and how to experiment, um, no matter what kind of topic or medium you're using. I think that is kind of the evolution that I see in teen space as well as in um, in public library spaces. I mean, for all ages. So. But I, I see the opportunity with teens kind of leading the way again, kind of like they did with the, when space was, you know, more flexible and comfortable. And now adults want that in their space, too. Once they see all these great teen spaces, they're like, hey, we want that, too, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a, it's a good opportunity to set kind of pave the way for, for public libraries in general. Um, and it's a good, like, kind of a mini, oh, kind of an experimental playground to see kind of what works and how to engage people. Many thanks again to Kimberly Bolin from Kimberly Bolin and Associates for talking with Dewey Decimal Podcast today. Her website is rethinkinglibraries.org. You can also grab her book, Teen Spaces, the step-by-step library makeover at alastore.ala.org. We've talked a lot about library design today, and that's great. We, we hope this is helping you if you're in that process, that building design process. But what if you need to know more, more than what we have here? Who can you turn to for tips and advice if you're at the beginning of a new project, if you're wrapped up in the middle of one, or you're finally putting one to bed and getting ready to open a new library? Who can you turn to? You can turn to ALA Editions. Over the years, ALA Editions has released a number of books dealing with many aspects of the building design process. But there's one book that really wowed me with this pure volume of information. It's called The Checklist of Library Building Design Considerations, and it's by William W. Sandwald. The book is simply what it says it is, a checklist of every single imaginable thing that you need to consider when building a new library. 288 pages of lists covering everything from planning and design and ADA compliance considerations to safety and security and maintenance issues. Really, it's all in there. And the book is now in its sixth edition. That says a lot about its use and trustworthiness. You can find it at alastore.ala.org. Let's be honest here, folks. When we think about, when we discuss library buildings and library design, we mostly talk about the winners, the beautiful buildings, the ones that are winning the awards for their innovative design or impressive features. But what gets shoved to the wayside, sadly, is the bad stuff. Those design elements that all libraries have, some more than others, that prevent them from operating at 100%. Fred Schlipf is Professor Emeritus at the Graduate School of Library and Information Science at the University of Illinois Urbana. He became involved in library building issues when he inherited a new building with far too many functional problems. And one of his major interests since then has been how we build libraries without making mistakes that cannot be undone. He lectures on the subject often, and he's currently writing a book for ALA Editions called The Practical Handbook of Library Architecture, and a part of that book tackles dysfunctional design. 
Fred and I chatted recently about just that, about dysfunctional design, about bad design, what elements can really wreck a library's functionality, and how libraries can prevent or work around those problems. I think when people hear bad design, I think that a lot of different things uh, come to mind. What is your definition of bad design? Dysfunctional. If it doesn't work, it's a bad design. And so that's my main interest. I'm not really interested in the aesthetics. You can have a, a good or a bad library with all kinds of, a, of looks, but what's important is whether it actually works or not. Mm -hmm. I think uh, librarians in the planning process are frequently not consulted sufficiently, and we end up with with buildings that are that simply don't work well as libraries. In, in your book, your, your upcoming book, I was lucky enough to see to see some early drafts thanks to ALA Editions. Um, you um, there are many many common bad design elements um, that you mm -hmm. you mention in the book, and I think one of the the main things that um, that really struck me was that you stress is uh, inflexibility and this inability to expand. I think is that's something really important to libraries, especially now when you find their spaces really have to be more than just a library and you know right. we, we we add to our collection so it has to to expand can you speak a bit a bit about that like what type of what prevents a library from being flexible and an ability to expand well one of the problems is too many things built in so they simply can't be moved for example there was a chicago suburban library i worked with and the card catalog was on a concrete plinth that was part of the building so when the time came to close the catalog, they couldn't really get rid of the plinth because the the jackhammers and the work and so on would have been tremendously disruptive. And then when they got through, they would have had to fill the hole and then to patch the carpet with carpet you couldn't ever match. So they just sort of put a eventually gave up and put a display case on it. But the the card catalog was directly in the main path from the lending desk to this reference desk, so it made the entire enterprise more complex. That business of making things inflexible, you know, building for the ages when we really have a procedure that is procedures that come and go. You know, for instance, architects are still mistakenly, or interior designers are mistakenly ordering lending desks for high schools, high school libraries that have cutouts on the top for card tubs for card-based lending systems even though very, very few libraries, except very tiny ones, use those. And so here we have a cutout on the top of the desk that serves no real purpose. Mm -hmm. And and then you're stuck with it, or you have to rebuild the desk. So the inability to expand is not always a problem, but if you get buildings, you really can't expand. There's a university library in California that's an upside-down pyramid, which still mm -hmm. is around the edge, and there's no place to attach an addition. And that makes it extremely difficult. So uh, some of the buildings that are most striking when they're built are basically uh, bumps in the road when you want to actually get something done. With public libraries, it's partly a matter of not leaving any space around it. So the time comes to make it bigger, and you've got no room, and you can't get any more room. And there's a tendency to think, well, in the past we made mistakes, but now this new building we're building for the ages. And of course, the ages turn out to be 30 years. Yeah, I think that that phrase "building for the ages" is is really important. I, I'm the editor of American Libraries Library Design Showcase, so I'm, I'm reviewing hundreds of, of library designs a year, and uh, you you definitely start to see trends and and, mm -hmm. and certain things that uh, that are 
big, but I don't think a lot of people are building for the ages that they're building for right now. And I think right. that you address a lot of these elements that are, you know, constitute bad design. Things that uh, can really be a hindrance, they, they, they might look great, but they, they're, you know, they'd be a hindrance in the long run. Do you speak a bit about, like, if someone's, you know, an architect comes to your library and says, we want to put a nice big atrium with a balcony um, and some skylights in the back. What would you say to something like that? Well, if, if I can speak with the owners, I would say don't do it. <laughs> and why? Well, I think atriums are very noisy. They, they funnel the noise up and down. So if you have if they're glazed in on the upper floors, if they have glass walls, it's not so bad. But when they're open, uh, one conversation at the entryway can fill the entire library. And we've got one at the University of Illinois that does that. Typically with atriums, architects or designers want to put in dramatic floating staircases in the middle of the atrium, which uh, panic people with acrophobia mm-hmm. and are frequently very hard to navigate, often because they're tempted to, the designers want to make them round or something else or other design that makes it kind of hard to climb. Uh, and then in some libraries I've seen there's this dramatic staircase, staircase that people with acrophobia don't want to climb. And the elevator that supplements it is hidden down an unmarked corridor as if they want to be sure that you climb the staircase whether you want to or not. So atriums are noisy. They're hard to change the lights. They take up a lot of space. They're expensive to heat and cool. And um, it's hard to find anything good to say about an atrium except wow. (laughs) I think wow lasts for five minutes, and then the functional problems of the atrium last for 50 years. Mm -hmm. So it's a... But they're incredibly popular with designers and incredibly unpopular with librarians. Hmm. The uh, you mentioned skylights, and the trouble with skylights is that they're uh, it's kind of uncontrollable. You know, if they let in too much light, it's too bright. At night, it's too dark under the skylights. They tend to reflect sound and be noisy, and they tend to leak. So outside yeah. of that, they're pretty good. <laughs> but <laughs> you mentioned the combination of skylight and atrium. And that's uh, and balconies, and that's uh, the worst of all possible worlds. And we we see it over and over again. I've looked at you know, plans for libraries overseas, and one after another has that same feature. And I keep thinking, uh, this is not a lot of fun. And I talk to librarians who work in them. If the, if a service desk is in the atrium, they hate it because usually it's uncomfortable. It's either too hot or too cold, and it's noisy. And they keep wanting to move away from the atrium, and then the designers come back and yank the desk back out into the middle of the atrium. I'm, I'm really glad to see, I was really glad to see you mention um, acrophobia in your book, because as someone who does suffer from acrophobia, um, it's, 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 I think it's something that maybe people would take for granted, that, um, that mm-hmm. you know, a staircase or a balcony or, or, or floor-to-ceiling windows might actually affect someone. Um, is is this something that, um, with contemporary design, you're seeing that addressed more? Frankly, I think it's not, uh, the problem isn't getting any better. If the Americans with Disabilities Act is ever extended to include acrophobia, there are a ton of libraries that are going to have really serious problems because they're mm-hmm. scary. Um, they have uh, narrow balconies. Some of them have balcony railings that can be climbed like ladders so that the balusters are horizontal rather than vertical, or sort of like wow. a rail fence, and children climb up and fall off. It happens. Uh, New York University, I wasn't going to name names, but they have <laughs> a huge atrium with narrow walkways around it, and 
the narrow walkways panicked people because it was a long drop. And then they started having suicides of people leaping off the edge of the off, off a balcony and landing in the bottom of the atrium far below. And oh, if wow. I were you know working the reference desk in the atrium, I just wouldn't enjoy having people thudding nearby me. In this case of NYU, they first put up plastic. Uh, sort of like plexiglass barricades to keep people from doing it, and then they uh, they put up a very very elaborate uh, perforated aluminum artistic shielding to keep people from being able to leap off the, the railings, leap off the balconies. But the easy thing to do would have been to just not have them in the first place. But it becomes I think when designers want to have one sort of show off element that really is exciting, that's one thing that occurs frequently is, is the atrium with the balconies around. Now, if um, you are in a library and um, you know that you have some of these bad design elements, what would you recommend they do to kind of um, work around some of these elements? For example, um, uh, you, you mentioned uh, like a, a skylight. What, 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 what can a librarian, do, what can a library do to to alleviate some of the problems with skylight? Well, they, they can. For one thing, they can partially shield it. I've seen that done. Um, you can. There are materials that will reduce the light transmission by two-thirds and diminish the glare. And that's a, that's a common thing. Some libraries have simply roofed over their skylights. I've seen libraries bridge over atriums, just try to convert them to open space. But it's a very, very expensive way to try to create space. So I think mm -hmm. you're happier not having to face up to it at the very beginning. Now, you had uh, mentioned um, maybe the architects. They they want this wow factor, you know, these yep. beautiful buildings that, you know, they might not work too well. Now, if you are a library and you are working with an architect or perhaps a city council or other um, stakeholders in the project and they want these wow elements and you know they're not going to work, what would you say to a library to kind of counteract that? What, what, what can a library do? Sometimes it's hard because it depends what the, what the city wants. Some cities really want a central library that will knock everybody's socks off. And that becomes the major motivating factor. Others aren't that extreme, and everybody's looking for good compromises. And I think at that point, you really rely on librarians rather than anybody else because nobody else works in the libraries. And they're, uh, so if, you're, if your library has someone on the staff with a good experience with library buildings and how they fit into spaces, you can do that. You can hire. There are library building consultants out there you can hire to sort of vet the design and try to look for things that may cause problems. Um, and both of those tend to, I think, help. I think the problem is when the library, when there's nobody with a background in, li in library work and experience with library buildings in the planning operation, things can get a little out of hand. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that's important to say is that it, it sounds like we're blaming architects for this, but Everybody contributes to confusion. Yeah. You know, cities that want uh, drama above all, um, the uh, and librarians who have sort of odd ideas and really push them. One thing librarians do is, by and large, they're extraordinarily nice people, and they're very, very determined to succeed even when things aren't working well. And they develop all kinds of interesting workarounds so that even though the building isn't friendly for library purposes, they figure out a way to kind of make it work. And then sometimes that's such an ingenious idea, they want to repeat it in a new building. But really, if you didn't start out with a handicap, you wouldn't do it. So I run into that every once in a while with a, an, old, an old cumbersome design idea that just was 
perpetuated because there was no other way to cope with the building. Now, we've been, we've been discussing a lot of um, bad elements, and um, now I don't, we don't want to really name names or anything, or name any, <laughs> call out any bad libraries, though a couple have been mentioned. But, I mean, let's kind of end on an up note here. What are some of the best design libraries that you've seen, in your opinion? Okay, I've, they're all, there's, a lot, there's a lot of libraries that have really good design elements. You know, my major contention is that this is all a continuum. There are almost every library is something you might think better of, and, and uh, no library is so bad that it has things you wouldn't want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I think of the libraries I know personally, the one I thought was the most successful was Pales Heights Library in the sh suburban Chicago. Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, it was amazing how many things the architect did well in a very tricky expansion remodeling job. So it's possible to do very, very well. To me, that was the most satisfactory. I liked the way it looked. It was an arts and crafts look. It was friendly and warm and welcoming, and everything worked. The sight lines were great. The staff could keep an eye on things. And it was a, it was a very, very successful building. You know, I, I don't really, I can tell insane stories about libraries where things didn't work, but I hate to, I don't want to pick on any special library. There are some libraries, I think, that were built by cities because they wanted to point to a dramatic building by a, by a major architect, and that was the guiding principle behind the design. So even though it ends up, to be, ends up being pretty dysfunctional, if functionality was not a main aim of the project, then it may be okay from that viewpoint. And you may not want to go there, but the point may be that you drive by and say, wow, look at that building, that's pretty dramatic. Many thanks once again to Fred Schlipp for talking to us. His book, The Practical Handbook of Library Architecture, is coming soon from ALA Editions. Keep your eyes peeled for it. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Join us next month as we dive into banned books and censorship. We have some great interviews planned. Some big interviews. Trust me. Don't want to give anything away right now, but trust me. As always, visit us on Facebook and Twitter. Leave a comment ask a question. We really, we want to hear from you. And if you can, please leave us a review on iTunes. The uh, reviews, the good words, they help us. They really do. I'm Phil Moorhart from American Libraries Magazine, and this has been the Dewey Decimal Podcast. People are just like taking things and throwing them all, you know, all over the place.